Well, this morning we return to our study of the book of Hebrews. Uh, you remember uh, we uh, had begun this study. We actually went through the first ten chapters. There's 13 chapters in the uh, book of Hebrews. And uh, last year we went through the uh, first uh, ten chapters in about uh, 22, 23 messages. And then we took a little break due to the holiday season, a lot of the special services that we were having. I, I, I didn't want to break up the continuity. So this morning we return to our study and we will enter uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 11, uh, but we're going to begin with a uh, review uh, to bring us all back up to, uh, to speed because we have had this break for about uh, six weeks or so. And so I hope you picked up a copy of your, uh, uh, the sermon notes as you came in and uh, just follow, through, uh, follow that as we go through this uh, review and uh, reacquaint ourselves with this book. And then uh, this morning we'll just have time to briefly look at the first two verses of Hebrews 11. Uh, look there in your sermon notes. First, the recipients. In other words, uh, to whom was the book of Hebrews written to? And uh, we have already seen that this was a church of Jewish Christians who had started very, very well. Now, let's just pause right there. Uh, Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Hebrews, and let's just remind ourselves of their good beginning. And uh, you need to go to Hebrews uh, chapter 10, that refers back uh, to the early days following their conversion, and you'll see the splendid faith that they demonstrated in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ says in verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, that would be a synonym, a synonym for their conversion, uh, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers of those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Now, what we uh, believe this is referring to is the persecution that took place under the Roman Emperor Claudius in 49 A.D. So we believe that this uh, church of Jewish Christians located in Rome, uh, that shortly after their conversion, uh, or they were actually probably born in the very fires of persecution, and uh, yet remained... Uh, faithful. You see them enduring suffering for Christ. You see here loving others at great cost. You see a freedom from materialism as expressed in the fact that they were able to joyfully accept the seizure of their property. What that's referring to, uh, Claudius issued an edict uh, that expelled basically Christians from the city of Rome. And so as they were expelled, Uh, What the Romans did, they seized their homes, their properties, all of their material goods. And so they left Rome literally destitute. And they imprisoned even many of the Christians during this uh, period of time. And so you say, well, man, as new believers, how could they have endured such suffering? How could they have demonstrated such uh, risky love? How could they have uh, joyfully accepted the seizure of their property? And, of course, we see there the answer. They believed they had what? A better possession, an abiding one in Christ. They truly valued Jesus above all other things. Now, go back to your notes. That's the good beginning. And then they began to waver. 
but we're now struggling with the cost of following Christ in light of Nero's persecution, which included imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom. Again, pause right there. Nero's persecution began in 64 A.D. So what you have is in 49 A.D., you had the persecution under Claudius, where many of them were expelled from Rome, lost their property, many of them were imprisoned. And then we know that they were able to return shortly after that persecution. They got resettled in Rome, became very comfortable. They began to uh, settle in. They began to see their standard of living increase and uh, began to uh, uh, experience and uh, enjoy a a relative degree of freedom in uh, worship and encouraging one another. And then uh, Nero came to power. And this was one of the worst times of persecution uh, for believers. It was much worse than what they experienced under Claudius. And as I mentioned, including not only imprisonment, but torture. And many Christians were martyred, put to death during this uh, period of time. Uh, And then going back to your notes. So you see there, since confessing Christ could cost their lives, what had begun to happen in this church is that some stopped attending worship. We saw that in chapter 10, verse 25, where he said some had forsaken the assembling of themselves together. Uh, The church was in spiritual retreat, and they were in danger of denying Christ and returning to Judaism. Uh, Turn over to chapter 5. This is a pretty good place to go just to see a a description of uh, where they were at this particular time. Remember, he was teaching them about the high priest of priesthood, priesthood of Christ. We looked at this section, verse 11. Concerning him, uh, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain why. Since you have become dull of hearing or sluggish of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. In other words, as a result of the persecution, as a result of getting eaten up with fear, they had regressed in their spiritual walk with God. They had regressed into spiritual immaturity. He says, you have an inability now to share spiritual truth. Uh, You need a baby food uh, diet. Uh, We're having to return to the elementary principles about Christ. They were unskillful, it says, in applying God's Word to their lives. And they had become self-centered. They had begun to focus on all the benefits of Christianity while neglecting the responsibilities. And so now that this time of testing had come, this persecution under Nero, they were, they were quaking in their, in, in their sandals with that. And they were, they were wavering in their faith. And they were uh, retreating uh, from our Lord and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Now look at the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book should be very obvious in light of what we've just shared. To encourage the frightened members of the church to maintain their Christian faith by keeping their eyes fixed on the supremacy of Christ and His salvation, and to warn them of the consequences of unbelief and disobedience. So what he puts before them is simply the supremacy of Christ. See, their their temptation was to retreat from Jesus back into their old Judaism and temple worship. So what the writer does, he holds up the supremacy of Christ. 
that Christ is much better than anything that you came out of in the past. It's much, the new covenant is much better than the old. And so why would any fool give up the greater for the lesser? And so he holds up how much better uh, the Lord Jesus Christ is. Now look at the central theme of the book. And that is the absolute necessity of not falling away from the living God. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 12 says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. So do not fall away, but instead you're to what? Press on to maturity. And 6.1 is probably the key theme verse for the entire book, where it says, Leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. That was the need of these believers. It's our need today, not to regress into spiritual immaturity, but as believers to press forward to maturity. And we do that by obeying what God has spoken in His Son. And in that very first chapter, those very first couple of verses, He says, God has spoken in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we come to the end of the book, it says, don't refuse. Him who speaks. And that is the heart of the book. God has spoken through His Son. Growth, maturity comes through obedience as we step out in faith and trust Him. Now look at the interpretive key uh, to the book, and we've seen this, and that is the example of the children of Israel at Kadesh Barnea that is alluded to in uh, Hebrews chapter 3 and uh, 4. And you remember the children of Israel had been, what, redeemed from slavery uh, in Egypt. And uh, God had uh, uh, brought them through under the blood. Remember the Passover lamb as he spared them while the uh, uh, eldest son of all the Egyptians were uh, put to death. And they were redeemed out of uh, of Egypt under the blood. Uh, Remember God led them by a pillar of fire at night, by a cloud by day. He supernaturally provided them, protected them. They saw that miraculous deliverance at the Red Sea uh, from Pharaoh and his armies as they were uh, destroyed. And God's intention was what? To save them, to redeem them, to bring them where? Into the promised land, to possess that territory. But remember when they got to the very edge of the promised land, Kadesh Barnea. And you remember the spies were sent out. And they came back with their report. And remember they said, there were 12 spies sent out. They said, hey, the, the land is everything that God said it is and more. I mean, it is land flowing with milk and honey, but there's one problem. There's giants. Uh, Their soldiers are mighty. And they said, they will squash us like you would a bug under your foot. And all of them gave that report except, of course, Joshua and Caleb, who said, yes, that is true, but God is with us. And we can trust God to give us the victory. But what was the children of Israel's response at Kadesh Barnea? They what? They retreated. Uh, instead of going forward in their faith, pressing on to maturity, trusting God obediently, moving into the promised land, knowing He would be with them, knowing He would give them the victory, they retreated in fear and in anxiety. They fell away from the living God in that act. And again, we've talked about this, not falling away in the sense of losing your salvation, but they never possessed what God intended them to possess, did they, here in this life, that uh, promised land. And they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. They knew God's protection in the wilderness years. They knew God's supernatural provision. But it was a wilderness existence. 
And that generation that had disobeyed God, every one of their corpses ended up what? Dead in that wilderness. And then God let the next generation go in. And of course, the appeal in the book is, as Christians, let's not make the same mistake. Yes, our salvation is secure in Jesus, but it's through trust and obedience that we secure the fulfillment of God's promises. And so don't miss out on all that God has for you in this life and the rewards He has for you in the next. And when we do fall away as they fell away, yes, we not only miss blessings in this life, but we miss many rewards that God would have desired to give us in the next as well. Look at the overview of the book very, very quickly. I won't uh, go into much detail with this. Uh, The book is uh, easily divided into three major sections. Uh, The first major section, as you see there, is chapters 1 through 7, where it says Jesus is the superior Savior, that He's superior to the angels, He's superior to Moses, Joshua, and Aaron. And again, you see this emphasis on contrasting Christianity with Judaism, and that uh, in Judaism, it's not that it was anything bad, it was a good thing, but it was a shadow, the purpose of it was what? To point people to Jesus. And his point is, now that Jesus is here, the real thing, you leave the shadow, you leave the symbols, you leave the rituals and the pictures, because now you got the real thing. And you're to enjoy Him. And then in chapter 8 through 1018, Calvary, the superior covenant, where he focuses on uh, what we have received through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and that that new covenant has superior promises than the old covenant. Uh, it has a superior sanctuary. They had an earthly tabernacle. We have a heavenly tabernacle. It's sealed by a superior sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus. And, of course, it achieves superior results by gaining us entrance into God's presence and securing us a secure relationship, eternal relationship with Him. And then uh, the last section, faith, being the superior principle, uh, beginning verse 19 of chapter 10, going all the way through the end of the book. Uh, we've already looked at those latter verses of chapter 10. We're going to reflect back on them in a moment. But faith is the true response, of course, to these superior things. And then we'll see that faith has been vindicated by many examples. And that's where in chapter 11, uh, we have this great hall of fame of faith, where he lists character after character who put their trust in God in very difficult circumstances and, uh, and saw uh, the fulfillment of His promise. Maybe not in this life, but they saw it in the next. And then faith now endures patiently looking to Jesus, and then the book ends by f- uh, focusing on the fact that faith expresses itself in a practical sanctity. And then one other thing before we move into the new material. Another key feature in the book of Hebrews are what? Five warnings. Scattered throughout the book are five warnings that intensify. And he uses these warnings uh, to really admonish these Jewish Christians and us today uh, to be careful about our walk with Jesus and uh, staying fresh with Him and knowing true renewal and revival on a continual basis. And remember the first warning was about drifting, about neglecting God's Word in uh, chapter 2. And then if you, if, you, you know, if you continue to neglect God's Word, what's that going to lead to? The second warning, doubting God's Word. Uh, that we saw in chapters 3 and 4, the ch- example of the children of Israel. And then if you continue to doubt, you're going to develop, as we already read in chapter 5, a dullness, a sluggishness towards God's Word. In other words, where you're unresponsive to God's Word, you become a hearer, 
You sit and listen, but you're not a doer of God's Word. And it's only in doing of God's Word that growth comes and blessing comes. And if you continue in that dullness, it leads to the last two warnings, which is despising and defying God's Word, uh, unbelief and disobedience. So, again, following your sermon notes, and let's move now into uh, Hebrews chapter 11, which is God's cure for the shrinks. God's cure for the shrinks. Now, why would I say that? It's so very important, listen to me now, to really, for you to get the full impact of chapter 11. We typically, when, typically when people teach on chapter 11, they, they, they don't put it in its context. And it's so important to see that it follows this very significant section in chapter 10, verses 35 and 39 about shrinking away from God instead of going forward in faith. And let's read those verses just to see the context. Chapter 10, I'll begin reading at verse 35. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. Of course, he's talking about confidence in Jesus, confidence in God and His Word and fulfilling His promises. He says, for you have need of endurance. This was the need of the Hebrew Christians as they were facing persecution. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one, in other words, until he comes, my righteous one will, shall live by faith. And... If he shrinks back, if he retreats in unbelief, in worry and anxiety, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction or wastefulness, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Now look at that introduction to Hebrews 11. Hebrews 10, 35-39, which we just read, of course is an admonition not to shrink back from Christ in times of adversity, but to remain faithful to Christ, confident God will fulfill His promises and reward faith. Hebrews 10, verses 35 through 39, is the hinge upon which chapter 11 swings open to give examples of people whose faith did not shrink back, but endured trial and adversity, resulting in God's approval. And so, in the context of the book, the purpose of chapter 11 is to encourage these Hebrew Christians who are facing persecution, don't shrink back. No, you maintain your confidence in God, despite the consequences. You trust Him, knowing that you do have a better possession. You do have an abiding possession that will be yours forever, that no one can take uh, from you. Now, let's define shrinking back as we continue there in your notes. To shrink back is synonymous, and I've alluded to this phrase already many times this morning, with retreating from Christ through unbelief. And again, we go back to Hebrews 3 uh, and the example of the children of Israel. Remember, he said there, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like they did in the wilderness when they provoked me. And then he goes on and he talks about how they did fall away from him with an unbelieving heart. That they did not mix the word that he gave them, the promise he gave them with faith. And as a result, they regressed, they fled. 
and missed all that God desired to give them. And so they lived literally the rest of their lives with regret because of their failure to put their trust in God. Now, this next sentence is so important there in your notes. At the beginning of adversity, any adversity, my faith is tested. It is a test of my faith. In the middle of the adversity, faith is strengthened through endurance. That's how God uses adversity. And then at the end, it's rewarded by God. And you see this. Turn over to James chapter 1. James is the very next book after Hebrews. Look at James, the first chapter, and you clearly see this process. How God uses testing, how God uses trial and adversity for the benefit, for the good of His child. He says in verse 2, "...consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials." So why, when, I, when I'm in a time of adversity, when I'm in a time of trial, why would I count that as a thing of joy? Well, verse 3, "...knowing..." that the testing of your faith, it produces something. And what does it produce? Endurance. And then he says, and let endurance have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God uses the adversity as a test to refine your faith, to purify it as gold, and to make you more like Jesus as He deals with all that yuck that's not like Jesus. Because what happens? Let's be honest. When you hit a time of trial and adversity, whatever on the inside, what? Comes out. And a lot of times it's not pretty. Because what comes out? Selfishness, fear, anger, complaining, murmuring. You know, it's, it's in times of trial that you really see where you are. It's a wonderful gauge of uh, where you are in life. But that's, that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because God's using that process to refine you, to build spiritual strength, to build spiritual muscles and endurance, and to make you more like Jesus. And then look at verse 12. Here's the end of the process. Blessed, happy is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. And folks, when He says they shall receive the crown of life, that's not just talking about eternal reward. It's saying when you go through trial and testing now, and when you persevere, and when you get God's stamp of approval, God will bless you. God will reward you in this life and in the next. Now, go back to your sermon notes. It is during the middle of the adversity. I think we would all admit this, that that waiting period, that faith comes under the greatest challenge. Amen? The the adversity begins. We realize it's a test. We know that God's purpose is to bring us through it to reward us. So the question is, that last statement there in your notes right there, will I continue to trust and obey God, confident He will fulfill His promises? Or will I shrink back in unbelief to be defeated by doubt, anxiety, panic, pessimism, complaining, murmuring, grumbling, whatever you want to put there? Now, the Hebrew Christians uh, look at their past faith. Now, we've already looked at Hebrews 10, verses 32 and 34. 
they had an example already in their lives where God hit them with a time of adversity to test their faith. They endured it faithfully, and God rewarded them. And you see there, they had a, get this down in your notes, they had a faith that endured great conflict, a faith that endured great conflict. They had a hope that suffered loss joyfully. They literally lost their homes, lost their property, lost everything they had in this life. And they gladly did it. They did it with joy. Because they knew their hope was not in this life, it was in the next with Jesus. That that is where their eternal home was. That is where God had prepared eternal riches and treasures for them. And then they had a love that took great risk. And folks, listen to me now. That's the authentic Christian life right there. That and nothing less than that. The gospel, Christianity is meant to produce a life that demonstrates a faith in the midst of great conflict. And will endure that conflict. And in the midst of it remain true to God. Knowing that it is a refining fire. Knowing that it is ultimately for my good and God's greater glory. And authentic Christianity produces a hope that will suffer loss. That will suffer tragedy. Joyfully. And don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean that we don't know pain. The Carroll family today. They're in great pain. They are hurting. Because they lost their loved one of 91 years. This great matriarch of their family. But I can tell you something. Deeper than their pain is a joy. It's a joy. Because they know she's in a better place. They knew at 8 o'clock last night when she passed that death was just a door that Jesus had transformed into an entrance right into heaven. Into the arms of of Jesus. If I could use my brother Jeremy as an example. Y'all know Jeremy's testimony? Jeremy knows pain every day. He knows pain every hour of every day. He knows pain every minute of every day. That's a reality he faces. But what do we see when we look at Jeremy? The joy of Jesus. Amen? So again, we're not trying to say that authentic Christianity gets you where you're free from pain, you're you're free from struggle. No, it's a struggle. It's a struggle when we hit pain, not to complain, not to become critical. But it's in that struggle that God produces endurance. It's through that struggle that we see the beauty and the treasure of Jesus and we embrace Him. And, and, And again, and that's why they were able to do that, because they treasured Jesus. They valued Him above all other relationships, all other things. Now look at their present shrinking that he's warning them about in uh, these latter verses in chapter 10. Now they had a faith that was compromised by fear. Instead of enduring the conflict faithfully, they were shrinking back in fear. They were retreating from Jesus, even tempted to go back to their old Judaism. They had a hope that had become diminished by doubt, just plagued by doubt. You know, does God really love us? Does God really care? I mean, is God going to fulfill His promises? Why would He let us go through this? And then they had a love that was eroded by self-interest. And the reason all this had happened is what we see in the book. They had drifted. 
They had taken their eyes off of Jesus. They had become too comfortable in that 15-year period between the two persecutions. They had begun to put their focus more on increasing their standard of living and enjoying the new materialism and the new freedom that they had. They had become complacent and apathetic in their Christian life. And as they began to neglect God's Word, they began to doubt it. And as they began to doubt it, as he said, you've become dull, you've become unresponsive, you've become hearers, but you haven't, you've lost becoming doers of God's Word, becoming obedient uh, to God's uh, Word. Uh, and so look at that note right underneath that. Note, God, and don't run over this quickly, God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back in faith. And he's talking about his children. It doesn't mean that if that happens that God hates you. No. Once caught by God's love, there is no escape. He loves you with a love that will never let you down. A love that will never fail you. A love that will never stop loving you. But you grieve him. You hurt him. You know, I've I've shared before. What would hurt me more than anything else as a parent? More than anything else. Would be one of my children. Say, Joel, he's sitting right up there. Coming up to me, looking in my face and saying, you know, Dad, I just don't think I can trust you anymore. Folks, that would be the most devastating thing one of my children could say. Sadly, that's exactly what we say to God every day. When we hit times of trial and when we retreat in doubt, when we retreat in anxiety and fear and unbelief, what we're saying to God is, you know, I know what you, what you said right here. You meant well, but you know, I just don't think you can pull it off. I just don't think I can trust you. That's what we're saying to him, and it hurts him, and it grieves him. Therefore, we need to know how to cure this problem. And faith is the answer. Faith is the answer. Look at uh, those last uh, two verses there that thrust us right into chapter 11, 38. But my righteous one shall live by what? Faith, faith. And in verse 39, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of my soul. Now, folks, we talked about this in our last message. Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Does anyone remember? That's a a quote from what book in the Bible? Does anybody remember? Very good, Habakkuk. And there in Habakkuk, we see what true, real faith is. I mean, true, real faith struggles. Habakkuk struggled. Remember, that was a prophet that struggled with disappointment with God. It's a little book of only three chapters. In the first chapter, you have the prophet arguing with God. I mean, it uses the word that he cried out to God. Uh, That word in the Hebrew text, it's it's a violent scream. And in that first chapter, he's saying, God, I don't think you care, and I don't think you're fair. I mean, he was struggling. He was hurting in light of the circumstances that he was looking at. And then, as I've shared with you many times from this pulpit, typically when we're in times of adversity, typically when we're asking why, like Habakkuk was asking, God doesn't bother to give explanations, but he gives promises That we can latch hold of. So you go to the second chapter and God speaks. And he says, Habakkuk, 
The righteous shall live by faith. So Habakkuk, are you willing to trust me even when you don't understand me? Are you willing to trust me even when you can't trace my hand? Can you trust my heart, my loving heart towards you? And then the second promise he gives him, later in that same chapter, is he said the the earth will be filled with the glory of God. What he was saying to Habakkuk, Habakkuk, when the smoke clears, I'm going to win. And if you're with me, you're going to be on the winning side. So the outcome of this whole shooting match is already fixed. It's already been determined by me. And then you go to the very last verse of chapter 2, and you have the third guarantee, the third promise. Habakkuk, God is still on the throne. So hush. Be silent. It's okay, Habakkuk. It's okay. Just crawl up in your daddy's arms. Let me embrace you. And then you trust me. So then you have this prophet who started arguing with God, screaming out to God. God gives these three promises. His circumstances haven't changed. He still doesn't understand all the reasons why. But now he has those promises of God. And folks, it totally changed his perspective, didn't it? You remember how he responds? He says, I will rest in the day of my tribulation. He says in verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom... And there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there is no cattle in the stalls. In other words, terrible circumstances, the worst of circumstances. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And the literal translation, here's how that literally reads in the Hebrew text, I will jump for joy in the Lord, and I will spin for delight in God. So you see, joy at its best in the worst of circumstances. So God takes no pleasure in those who shrink back in faith. Therefore, we need to know how to cure this problem. Faith is the answer. A faith that trusts God's heart, even when we cannot trace His hand. A faith that is confident that God has predetermined the outcome of the whole shooting match, and a faith that's confident God is on the throne and He's in control. And I can trust Him with the affairs of my life, as difficult as they may become, that He's working for my good in His greater glory. And with that, we move into chapter 11. And let me just begin by defining faith. By defining faith. Faith is the certainty and confidence that God will fulfill His promises, which provides the strength to live for Christ today. In spite of what appears to be impossible circumstances or frightening consequences, faith is the certainty and confidence that God will fulfill His promises, which provides the strength to live for Christ today, in spite of what appears to be impossible circumstances or frightening consequences. Now, folks, were the Hebrew Christians facing what appeared to them impossible circumstances with frightening consequences? Yes! This little house church in the city of Rome, up against the imperial might of Rome, the world empire of its day, 
Nero is the emperor. The consequences of obedience was going to be imprisonment, torture, martyrdom, the loss of everything. We see, faith for them would be, I'm still certain, I'm still confident God's going to fulfill His promise. It's going to give me the grace to remain faithful to Him today, despite these circumstances, despite these consequences. Because even if God doesn't deliver me, hey, for me, death means what? Glory. So for to me to live, as Paul said, is Christ, and to die is gain. So I can't lose. So the question is, how about you? Now, you may not be facing the type of persecution the Hebrews were facing, but you're facing your own adversity. You're facing your own trials. You may not be facing Jeremy's trial, but you have your own trials. Are you placing your confidence in God to fulfill His promises, despite what the circumstances appear, despite the consequences? Now, look at Hebrews 11, 1 and 2. And we'll move to a quick conclusion and pick up here next week. It says, now faith is the assurance of things, what's it say? Hope for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. Don't miss the correlation to James 1.12. Remember, once you've persevered the trial, you receive the crown of life to all those God what has approved. And we receive His approval when we put our faith in Him in difficult circumstances. Now, folks, all you've got to do is ask yourself, now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Well, what's being hoped for? What are, what are the things not seen that are being hoped for? And the answer is obvious. It's the fulfillment of the promise. They are in the middle of the adversity. They are in the middle of the trial. They're in that difficult waiting period. They're hoping... For what they haven't seen yet. And it says faith gives you the assurance that what God has promised will be fulfilled. It gives you the conviction of that reality. Look at, look at a couple other passages in Hebrews that has this same thought. Hebrews 6, 11 and 12. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 35 and 36. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what He has promised. And then look at just a definition of assurance and conviction. Assurance in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It literally means to stand under. And often refers to a foundation that undergirds a building. It also refers to a title deed showing uh, it's a document proving ownership. So, faith in God provides the only unshakable foundation to stand on in life. And faith is our title deed guaranteeing possession of all God is and all that He has to offer. Isn't that wonderful? Faith, our faith in God, is the only unshakable foundation to stand on in this life. And it is our guarantee <laughs> that we will receive all that God has promised. In conviction. 
It carries the truth a little bit further because it implies an outward response of obedience to the inner assurance of trust in God. Faith in its very essence is trusting obedience in God. That's the best definition I can give you of faith. It's trusting obedience in God. Faith is never passive. It may accept and surrender to what God is doing in the present circumstances, but in the midst of that, it is active, embracing God, leaning on God, going forward to make Christ known to a lost world as He formed in us. And so what He does in Hebrews 11 is what? He just, for these Hebrew Christians that are struggling, out of their own Old Testament, He just begins to give them example after example after example after example of those who had the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Individuals that in the midst of terrible circumstances put their confidence in God, endured, and knew God's approval. So that last statement in your notes... How can I measure my spiritual life and growth? By watching my response to adversity. By watching my response to adversity. Do I face the test with joy and faith, knowing God will be true to His promises, or do I shrink back in unbelief, pessimism, and panic? In other words, when adversity shrinks, do I look at God and say, God, this hurts, but thank you, because I trust you, and I'm confident, and I'm going to believe you, And I'm going to go forward, trusting you're going to use this, not as an obstacle in my faith, but as a stepping stone to take me closer to you, to refine my faith. Or do you retreat in doubt and pessimism and panic? Now, as we have a time of invitation, of course, this message has been directly to believers. But if you're an unbeliever here today, of course, you have to face tomorrow too. And the tomorrow you face is where there's the certainty of death. The Bible says it's appointed to man to what? Once die, and after death comes judgment. One day, you're going to be face-to-face with God, and He's going to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? And there's only one answer to that question that's acceptable, and that is, I put my trust in Jesus Christ. I put my trust... In His death on the cross, when He paid my sin debt and secured me eternal salvation. It's not by works we have done, but by His mercy we are saved. And so I would encourage you, if you are not a believer, make your heart His home. Invite Him in this day to forgive you your sins and take control of your life. That you will know His grace that we've talked about as you walk through your trials knowing that God is in control and He's causing everything to work for your good in His greater glory. And then for you that are believers, how has God spoken to you? Again, that's why I give you those sermon notes. It takes me a lot of time to produce that. I give that to you so you can take that with you and you can continue to reflect on this truth. And I'll tell you again, as I've told you a thousand times, right here at the first of the year, listening to a message has never changed the first person. It's acting on the message. It's obeying it. And and growth comes in just little baby steps. So just pick one area. Just just sort of circle one area, mark one area. And this next week, you focus on that. Whatever you might be struggling with. 
And trust God will work in that particular area. So the invitation to be extended. I'll be standing here to greet anyone that has a decision of any nature. Uh, placing your faith in Jesus. Or possibly you've been visiting here. And God's leading you to become a member of our church family. It would be our joy to receive you. And uh, so you just be obedient to however God has spoken as the invitation is extended. Please stand.